welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> welcome back, everybody, to the Flex Success Podcast. You are joined by myself, Dean, and my lovely co-host, Lizzie. Lizzie. Hey, Lizzie. I wasn't sure if you were pausing for me to introduce myself or not. Hi, everyone. And we are joined with uh, Big Daddy Joe. <laughs> Have you been called that? that is, uh, I'm calling Big Daddy because um, he, he was our host for our homestay just recently, let's call it. We lived with Joe for, what was it, like yeah, three, one, three weeks, four weeks? Yeah, it was Daddy's house. Daddy's house. Um, Daddy's house. Is, yeah. it, is it weird that I send Daddy pictures of me in uh, basically a G-string? <laughs> Yes, it is. But let's give that some context. Uh, Joe is Dean's bodybuilding coach. Dean will be stepping on stage in seven weeks for those that have been following along with the podcast or or Dean's uh, personal Instagram. Uh, And Joe, we've had you on the podcast once before, but maybe for those that haven't listened to that podcast or don't know who you are, let's hand it over to you. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? Yeah, firstly, thank you guys for having me, of course. It feels like ages ago that we did that podcast. I remember it, it must be at least a year and a half because I was in our old house when we did that. Has it been that um, long? Wow. Yeah, it, it must have been. Um, so for people that don't know me, I'm an online physique coach. I've been doing this quite a while. I think full-time six-ish years coaching. Coach mainly people searching for quote-unquote optimal outcomes, most of my clients are competitors, male and female, spanning across pretty much all classes, criteria, feds. Um, I don't work with any gen pop. Um, that doesn't mean all of my clients are competitors. Some people that are just pushing for like maximum muscle growth or, or whatever it may be in terms of bodybuilding outcomes. I also don't work with any strength or power athletes. It's all physique-based. Uh, I'm also the founder of an education and entertainment, you could say, company called Physique Collective that has grown over time to become uh, a big collation of coaches with a lot of material on our private members app. And we've got a discussion forum there that's pretty busy. Um, Dean Logs there. Um, and yeah, I think that's me in a nutshell, other than my passions outside of bodybuilding, which is just dogs, basically. And that's it. I do miss your dogs, Joe. Mm. Um, Joe's little staffy hunter used to come up to our bed and snuggle with us. And it's a dogless bed and it's, it's cold and sad. So I'm looking forward to coming back to your house for, um, was it? Yeah. Yeah. We'll be snuggling with Hunter. Um, when I'm not willing to give you any attention whatsoever. Yeah. Which is all of crap. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Then I'll just be like, Hunter. (laughs) That's funny. Um, okay. Now there's so many things that we could discuss with you, Joe. But we thought that we would discuss perhaps how you manage energy balance with your clients. And I'll, I'll ask you a specific question, of course, but I thought I would maybe start with some definitions for people who are fairly new or aren't too sure on the terms. So we know that in order to manage our body weight, there's, there's a lot of nuance, but essentially you can boil down to energy balance, calories in versus calories out. And we can talk about maintenance calories being the amount of energy somebody can take in to maintain their body weight. Another way of saying that is TDEE. So if you hear Joe or Dean or I say an energy deficit, 
that is the amount of calories less than maintenance calories, right? Mm -hmm. Or an energy surplus would be the amount of calories eaten above maintenance calories. Are there any other terms that we think output would just mean exercise or movement of some sort? Yeah, and TDE, total daily energy expenditure, <clears throat> like how much you expend in a day. Yeah, that encompasses the four different components of the way that we burn calories. Hmm. Um, bring up that. Can you repeat that, activity. Sorry, NEAT would be one that I'd probably bring to the forefront to focus on. So okay. activities that are not formal exercise, like steps, cleaning, um, tapping your foot, even blinking. If you look at some of these crazy metabolic board studies where people fidget less and blink less and stuff like that in harsh calorie deficits, I think that's a super important one to track through any kind of prep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Cool. Yeah. The, the reason why I thought this topic would be interesting is one because obviously you do specialize in physique athletes or people that are looking for particularly physique outcomes. Is that everybody wants to know like what should I manipulate and when and how hard and how often if I'm trying to create a deficit to facilitate the best possible body composition outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of things to discuss. Yeah. So. So maybe the specific question that we could ask you, Joe, on how to manage energy balance is, let's say somebody comes to you with a fairly average musculature, fairly mm -hmm. average body fat, and they want to look like a human walnut, which I think was the name of the podcast we recorded with you last time, how to look like a human walnut. How would you go about managing their energy balance? Would you start them in a surplus, maintenance, deficit, how harsh of a surplus or deficit? And the first thing, and as is the case with 99% of my clients, is most of their goals are time-specific. Um, so ultimately, the first thing to do is plan your periodization up to that point. So if anyone's going to get skinned like a human walnut, I would hope that they're only doing it for a, a prep or for a photo shoot. There's really no reason to do that unless you're just a sadistic bastard. Yeah. Um, so we'd have a date or at least a rough kind of idea of where we wanted to land peeled. And then we're going to have to periodize that. And it's an oversimplified explanation to assume, right, we're going to just uh, deficit all the way in. There has to be some objective measurement of how are we going to get there peeled from where we are now? What's the distance that we need to travel? And then what's the best way to get there? What breaks can we afford to take along the way? And then look at things like systemic fatigue and see how we can manage that moving in to make sure that we can actually get there anyway. You know, um, if, you, if you take the sort of guys of lesser diet as hard as possible from day one, most people just won't make it there. Um, and if you diet too um, moderately, then you might make it there, but still fat. So you at least have to have some periodization idea, which... You know, funnily enough, Dean, you, you'll agree with this, is like it's still fairly rare to periodize bodybuilding, um, even just like mesocycle design or, or how you would structure a um, various energy balance phases throughout a macro cycle. I would encourage anybody to look at their whole prep as a macro cycle. So, again, what's just jumped into my mind, what's probably important is what you have just done up to this point of deciding that you're moving into the prep. Like if you haven't had a period of being eucaloric, you know, maintenance calories for a little while and training with true maintenance volumes, maybe between four to eight sets per body part per week, two to three reps in reserve, 
and you haven't been on a drug dose low enough to allow space to accumulate up without huge drug mediated fatigue, then you just can't start anyway. Because again, you're just not going to get there because of these external fatigue factors. Your allostatic load is just going to be too high. So what you've done, plus then periodizing the plan to get there and being objectively accurate and rational about that. It's not like, well, I've got 60 pounds of body fat to lose. There's a show in eight weeks. Let's go. It's, you know, is this, can we actually get there and how can we get there in the best way? Like Dean's a great example of that, the way that we've had to manipulate your periodization throughout the last year with shows the encounter and whatnot. But because we've been so diligent about managing fatigue properly, here we are in a nice spot. And anybody on the Physique Collective Forum will probably see where we've got this diet break here. And then we've got this four weeks of deficit because we have sort of X amount of body fat to lose before we get here from this current state. And then we have this test peak here, which we can afford because of what we did here. You know, uh, you, you, it's not that simple when you're trying to get a bodybuilder skinned and look full, fresh, not carrying a load of fatigue. I think that's where the nuance is. You know, loads of people can get skinned inside out, but look terrible. Um, yeah, that's just a war of attrition, really. You know, who's willing yeah. to suffer? But um, all right, so let's think about a starting point then. We have the concept of us, obviously, we are, let's just assume somebody has set them up with the appropriate preparation for a fat loss phase. You know, they have spent some time training less intensely, both from a volume perspective and a, a reps and reserve perspective. Uh, if they are using performance enhancing drugs, those have been dialed back for a period of time. Maybe their output is neutral. They their haven't developed a binge eating disorder. Yeah they're, yeah, they're psychologically, socially in a great spot. They're ready to rock and roll. We then are saying essentially, all right, like if you are X kilos and you want to be roughly 10 kilos lighter than that, there needs to be a sufficient amount of time for you to achieve that without also then playing up the, the fatigue cut. What's mm-hmm. an appropriate goal, do you think, for people to consider for rate of loss done in a manner that isn't too risky for not making it towards the end? So right at this beginning point, uh, looking at rate of loss, and I'll, I'll describe this as a percentage of total average moving body weight. So, you know, if you're going to weigh yourself every day, look at an average at the end of the week, do the same the following week, the difference you could map into a percentage of what you weigh. So as we progress through this macro cycle, and for anybody that doesn't know, this is just a, a nerdy sports science term to mean a bunch of mesocycles or blocks of training um, that are going to result in us getting to the stage or the photo shoot or whatever. Be aware that training fatigue is going to accumulate as you go through this macro cycle. So that's one fatigue driver. Drug fatigue is going to accumulate as you go through with your exposure to androgens or lipolytics or whatever else. You've got these two vectors of fatigue that are going to get higher, but right now at the beginning, they're fairly low. And if you're going to try to maintain a fairly like flat line, homeostatic marker of systemic fatigue, you can afford to be a bit more aggressive here whilst before the fatigue is accumulated from those two vectors there. So I would probably edge towards the 1% of total average body weight loss at the beginning of a prep, when appetite's low anyway, when you haven't got any diet fatigue, you haven't got any food funds, you can get a lot of that done prior. And then as fatigue from these other vectors accumulates, I would want to attenuate that down until eventually clients will get to the 0.25% of total average body weight per week marker. And then we will be at maintenance, mm. potentially for four weeks prior to the show. I really like looking at body weight loss as a percentage of body weight as opposed to these 
set numbers because Dean losing 1% of body weight per week at, let's just say when you were 100 kilos for easy math, a kilo a week, me at 60 kilos, my same 1% body fat is 600 grams a week. We've both lost 1%, but mine is so much smaller. So understanding that if you just have less to lose in the first place, you you can't you don't have as much to lose per week. So it doesn't mean that smaller people are worse at losing weight. It's that it works as a percentage mm. of body weight, which I think is where a lot of people go wrong and maybe think there's something wrong when there's not. Yeah, or, or even similarly, though, if we want to lose X amount of fat per week, it's essentially an absolute number. Like roughly speaking, we could say like to lose one kilogram of fat per week, you may need to you know, right. eat at a deficit of roughly 1,000 calories per day. And again, a 60 kilo female doesn't have 1,000 calories available to pull from her diet potentially. Yeah. So it's actually now we're th- thinking like, oh, shit, hang on a minute. I wanted to lose six kilos in six weeks as a, as a 66 kilo female. But no, 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 no. That means you need to eat 1,000 calories a day if you want to do that. Yeah, so if I'm maintaining on 2,000 a day, I need to eat 50% of that in order to lose a kilo a week. And that doesn't leave me with enough for my, you know, minimum daily fruit and veg, protein, some good quality fats. Like there's just not enough there. Dean pulling 1,000 calories a day, he's got plenty to play with. It is the unfortunate truth of little people, isn't it? So, yeah, just to recap that, so we're looking at like roughly that 1% at the front end, you'd say first 50% of the dieting phase. I mean, we haven't really spoken about, I suppose, length of dieting phase determining rate of loss as well. Perhaps that might be worth yeah. like discussing, Joe. So like um, periodization of a, a dieting phase, my preference with all clients is to maintain whatever deficit we come to terms with, whatever percent of total average body weight loss that is for the duration of the accumulation phase of each mesocycle. So whilst you are actually training, whilst there is a progression scheme in place we can maintain this deficit and then every time a client would deload be that between three to eight weeks in some cases i will absolutely have all clients in maintenance over that deload you, you simply cannot deload and, and wash off fatigue if you're driving fatigue from uh, another factor or when your recovery is substrate dependent you know your, your recovery is dependent on your ability to have nutrient availability so i would prefer to diet Longer, let's say we're going to do four mesocycles into a show. I'd much rather tag on four extra weeks of that um, as compared to driving straight through. Uh, and, and anecdotally, but, you know, I say anecdotally, but the, the research tends to show this as well when they compare linear rate of loss with rate of loss and diet breaks, they, they tend to match um, when you put the time and the deficit together. Um, oh. But adherence improves greatly. Um, diet- I was going to say, if nothing else, yeah. They say, if nothing else, they're as good at fat loss, but better at most other things. Mm. That's the that's the non-continuous, the non-linear approach. So people that take breaks in their dieting period and then start again and stop again. Just called start again. intermittent dieting. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Depending on how lean this individual was, uh, uh, maybe that first mesocycle would be that 1% marker. Then we may slow it down if we can. Um, two mesocycles out of four, maybe. Um, but the last two mesocycles into a show, um, you know, that last mesocycle, I very rarely have somebody pulling off more than 0.25. So people who are unsure why that might be the case, could you clear it up for them? Simply fatigue. You know, the, the amount of systemic fatigue that we're driving through, there's a bodybuilding show, um, and it, that systemic fatigue makes such a huge difference to your ability to train productively, to sleep productively, to have a functioning GI and autonomic nervous system 
management, to your ability to maintain muscle and present it well without looking, I can't remember who used the quote, sinewy, it's very much dependent on autonomic nervous system function. And it just becomes that much harder to lose fat at that point. You know, when you're trying to mobilize and liberate fatty acids from adipocytes that are, I don't want to use the term stubborn, but I mean, you can, you know, these kind of alpha receptor dense body fat sites, it, it's, it's super hard. You know, Dean, you know this yourself, but like, got that little base of the glue uh, point and it, you know, you can get three quarters of the glutes in four weeks and that last bit of the glute, that might take you eight. <laughs> mm. And you'll never, ever get lean on the inside of your knee. <laughs> <laughs> that spot, man. Uh, I remember Dorian Yates talking about being so lean that his feet hurt because there was no fat left on the bottom of his feet. You've experienced that before, haven't you? Yeah, and graphically yesterday I put on uh, Instagram, you know you're getting lean when your butthole actually touches the seat. <laughs> it's a really weird feeling to sit on a bench and like have weight bed and you're like, oh. I've never been that lean. I can feel my butthole touching the seat. <laughs> I hope you're wearing undies. Could be the fact that I've got a massive prolapse. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> uh, I do not. Okay, so 1% at the front end, maybe we're going to slow that down, potentially eventually getting to the 0.25 when we're talking about right at the end when we're going for the translucent, sinewy skin look. Yeah, and for this engage. to really work, sorry to interrupt, but for yeah. this to work, you, you have to come into prep lean enough. You know, the, the biggest mistake is um, starting prep fat because you'll have to drive so much fatigue to get lean Many times with clients, I've prepped before prep. I've dieted before we've started prep, and we slowed it down at prep. You know, maybe with cruise dosages of PDs and maintenance volume, we've had a really large deficit for four weeks, and then maybe a week or two of maintenance, and then we started prep. Mm. Mm. Again, because the fatigue is available for you to basically build up at that front end too. Um, I, I yeah. think like probably my average loss that I'll see across an entire prep is somewhere between 0.5 to 0.75%. Once you work out, you know, the 1% for the first 50% of prep and then the 0.25 for the back end and so on, let's give or take, say, half a percent for an easy number. People need to realize that we're now talking about 10 kilos is 20 weeks. Yeah. You know? Plus, if we're going to take breaks to mitigate fatigue and you want to do four of those every four, like four weeks, now we're talking about 24 weeks for 10 kilos. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're fatter than 10 kilos, not a, not accounting for like just body weight from shifting food out from the surface. Fatter than needing to lose 10 kilos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're 30 weeks now. Yeah. You know, yeah. now that doesn't mean you can't do it like you said, Joe. It just means you won't do it optimally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like and Anybody that knows this for a long time knows that. Sorry, Lizzie. Um, anybody that's put people on stage knows the difference in look. The most obvious example in the last year was Joe Ballinger. I think, you know, when we started working together last year and like, the only thing we did was drop off fatigue, you know, a big pull down of drugs, calories back to maintenance, training modulated in a way where reps in reserve were included. He was taking everything to failure, et cetera, et cetera. And the look changed so, so drastically. Um, and we managed to roll through those last three shows like, looked incredible um, yeah. and then you know it shows now when you're looking at him coming into this pro qualifier in april it's a totally different look and that's just one example anybody that's put people on stage knows the difference 
Mm. It does disappoint me um, that Joe Ballinger has improved so much because he seems to be competition for Dean. You don't know how much I'm paying Joe on top of his coaching fee to run his fatigue back up. <laughs> to sabotage <laughs> Joe Ballinger. I'm also paying Matt off. I'm also paying you off. Yeah, I'm paying Matt off too to take him to sushi. Uh, I'm asking him questions about what things he likes to buy and prep so I can send them to him. I've got this all figured out. You, need to do, you just need to get Matt to over-egg him on the hack squat and he'll blow up both his knees. <laughs> do it. Uh, that won't be hard. So, uh, Joe, if you have the chance of listening to this, the other Joe, not you, obviously. Joe um, Mate, you don't train hard enough. It's simple <laughs> as that. Got to go to Pelham. Hashtag it's proven wrong. It's the hardest thing to get him to train the way that he's supposed to. That's like that's why I need Matt there. Matt's just making sure he doesn't take it too far. Mm. It's a blessing and a curse, that mindset. Mm. Mm. Can be. Um, so there's a lot of value in, you know, the methods that we're talking about today for people who aren't trying to step on a bodybuilding stage because the same principles apply. You just perhaps wouldn't take it as far because you don't need to get that lean but still these are the principles for gaining muscle and losing fat that anybody trying to improve their physique will need to understand um and what i'm getting here joe is that everything has a purpose everything is thought out you zoom out and think like okay what am i trying what is the specific thing that i'm trying to achieve right now what is the specific thing that i'm preparing for right now so that when you go ahead and do things it's efficient Mm. yeah what i encourage anybody to do and what i do as a coach is i always have phase-specific goals for each vector under our control. And even beyond that, I'll have mesocycle-specific goals, macrocycle-specific goals, microcycle-specific goals. What do we need to get done this week in our training with our nutrition slash energy balance expenditure equation, our PED use, our stress and our sleep management? And then what do we need to get done over the next mesocycle? And then what do we need to get done over the macrocycle? And once you have those objective goals in place, it's pretty easy to tick them off every day, and then you look back in four weeks and go, oh, there we go. Oh. You know, it's, it, uh, there we, we, we've taken the step. I think one thing for, that's a huge thing for lifestyle people that are just looking to maintain a leaner physique. I think if I could give those people another piece of advice, it would be don't over-focus on linear fat loss to your goal without knowing what to do afterwards or even do that thing along the way. Yeah. For example, <clears throat> for some reason, this is like bodybuilding moniker to like, right, prep, 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 mass, 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 mass. So like that kind of macrocycle design is not necessary, especially for a lifestyle client. Let's say we're going to do two deficit mesocycles. Food focus gets a bit high. You know, your, your lifestyle stuff, being able to go out with your family or whatever is starting to get affected and you don't like that. Cool, let's maybe do maintain for four weeks. Learn to maintain the progress that you've made. And then maybe you'll do a surplus mesocycle. Who knows? You know, and then get back to the deficit. There's no reason why you need to linearly drive all the way to being absolutely peeled and then go, fuck, what do I do now? You know? Not having a plan after is like straightening the deck chairs on the Titanic when it's tilting. Like they're just going to get crooked again. Um there's, you know what, there's so many reasons to do a maintenance phase. Like if somebody's trying to get lean for a holiday, if they're in a deficit up until the day they leave for a holiday, you're going to feel really hungry. You're going to feel restricted. And then when you actually enter the holiday or the weekend or whatever event you're trying to get lean for, chances are you're going to be, feel like you've been let off the leash a little bit and you're going to go wild. So 
stopping the deficit a couple of weeks out is what I suggest to my clients anyways. And doing maintenance before the holiday means you're going to be more prepared for all the temptations because you're not going to be as hungry. It's not going to feel like you've just been let off the leash. Well, it's the thing. Fatigue messes all of this shit back up. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, and maintenance phases, even outside of these acute maintenance weeks like diet breaks, extended maintenance phases are like the enemy of bodybuilders because they're psychopaths and they're growth-minded individuals and they need to be, you know, my clients, it, it hurts me when they're in maintenance phase. Can I diet? Yeah, can I do this now? Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you look at it objectively. Let's go for all of those vectors that we mentioned, right? If, uh, this is a, a slight offshoot, but it'll, I think this is valuable for people listening. So you've got training, like, we have got great data to support that higher training volumes to a point there's a there's a logarithmic relationship with training volume and hypertrophy there's a dose response curve that's like an inverted u so we know that higher training volumes are associated with greater hypertrophy but we also know that escalating training volume before what uh, above what you are currently doing is associated with greater hypertrophy so it's probably a good idea if, if you are an evidence-based coach or individual that practices this that you will train with higher volumes and also have accumulated volumes but how do you accumulate beyond a certain point you know so at some point you're going to have to train with lower volumes you can do that in the maintenance phase works perfectly energy balance wise there's slight degrees of metabolic adaptation that take place but i think most of the things that we can uh, to consider are like fat cell signaling of ghrelin and you know imbalances in peptide yy and, and glp1 and stuff that occurs with extended dieting at some point you're going to have to maintain even after a large surplus you know there's non-acute hypertrophy mechanisms that you need to instate prior to dieting so you know here we've got to do these two things at some point well they're, they're both involved in maintenance phases and drugs like you can't just take a high dosage of drugs all the time well you can but you won't live for very long and there are negative feedback regulators to be aware of with PD use, you know, like myostatin and so on and so forth. So you have to take a break at some point. So you might as well do it all at the same time in a maintenance phase. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I always liken this phase to like a settle and sustain. And then you're right, like people that I deal with, because I deal with the same cohort of individuals as you, are, have a progressive mindset. They're always looking to go somewhere. And the only way that I found effective in, in framing this is that this is a phase to prepare you for a greater or more successful next phase, you know? And if we don't take this period, then the next phase won't be as successful. And then every time we don't take this period and we take a less successful phase, we're diminishing our return on our investment, which is all of the effort mm. every time. So it's like, instead of like a bank where theoretically you put more money in, the interest rate pays you more money back. Eventually you start to actually lose interest on every time you put more money back in. Mm. So, yeah, but, but I think this is one of the wonderful things about the periodization and the planning concept, right? And again, we share a fairly similar macroscopic view of how we set clients up in regards to like a visual representation on a sheet. Say, so like, hey, this is where we are. This is where we'd like to be in 12 months. This is what we need to do every three months to achieve that. And this is what we need to do every week and every month in order to achieve that three-month goal. Break it down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the difference between lifestyle clients and comp prep clients. Lifestyle clients want to reach a goal and once they're at that weight or can do that deadlift or whatever, they're like, great, success, let's maintain this. Whereas bodybuilders can always be bigger. There's always more muscle you can put on. You can always be leaner. <laughs> There's always more conditioning that you can achieve at a show. Um, and it's unfortunate that some people toggle in and out of 
cutting and gaining and then cutting and then gaining again and then cutting and gaining again without maintaining. They're not preparing themselves adequately and they're really ripping themselves off. Yeah. Yeah, spinning your wheels excessively over long periods of time, absolutely. And, and you mentioned lifestyle clients as well. I think if we, you know, like we gave a, an idea of the rate of loss for people listening. I think if I was going to give a recommendation for periodization, if you're going to set yourself mesocycles anecdotally and, and in terms of the literature on, on this topic, 16 to 20 weeks of accumulation to deload phases or three to four mesocycles is what 99% of individuals will be able to tolerate prior to requiring a period of lower training volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask, Joe, when you are dealing with your clients and you need to affect the energy balance in some way to facilitate a larger deficit, would you generally uh, decrease the input, so take calories away, or increase the output, get them to move more? So this is going to be highly inter-individual for the specific client setting and what they're currently doing, but general recommendations would be like my preference as a coach is to keep people in a high energy flux environment would be generally preferred. And anybody that doesn't know what that means, we're talking... In simple terms, eat more, do more to create the surplus or deficit. So, for example, I could create a 500-calorie deficit from just eating 500 calories less than maintenance and my activity being exactly where it is. Or a high-energy flux example would would be on on the extreme end to keep eating exactly the same and just perform 500 additional calories of expenditure. So within the schema of fatigue management, I would always prefer to keep activity highest. Now, my general preference as a coach, I can't remember the last time I actually used formal cardio with a client. Um, in an example with an individual that had a very sedentary lifestyle, I certainly would. But for all of my clients that I've put on stage in the last couple of years, it's just steps, standing, believe it or not, and posing. That's really the only expenditure tools that I've used. But my preference would generally be to keep them on the higher end. And again, the the research tends to show that that is associated with greater diet satisfaction, greater training performance, greater hunger management, etc. Would it be a a case of increasing the output from the beginning and then holding that? Or are we talking more you find it beneficial in this preparatory phase before fat loss? to find maintenance in a higher energy flux and then retain the output. Definitely, at at least to the degree that it doesn't drive external fatigue because there's also an adaptive sense here. So for somebody like me, all the dog walks I'm doing and whatnot, I'm edging around 17K at the lowest steps, 20K at the highest. And I spend about 50% of my day stood, maybe a bit more actually. I spend 50% of my office time stood. And the rest of my time stood anyway because I'm out with the dogs or training the dogs or something. So for me, that activity does not drive any kind of subjective or objective fatigue. For an individual doing 2,000 steps per day, I'm sure if I say go and do 20,000, they'd be like, oh, my feet are killing me. You know? um, so I would at least like to get an individual to that homeostatic point where a high level of activity, let's just say, 10,000 steps, which I know is a sort of number that's just like bounded around, but I don't consider that particularly high activity, but you know, at least something like that would be valuable prior to a prep. 
And then maybe we have space to move that up to the 15 to 20K marker. Um, I prefer steps for many reasons, mainly because, and you'll know this psychologically, doing cardio or having to go out to get your expenditure is quite a toll. Whereas we were talking about this, Dean, you prepping in a new country and the novelty that that brings. You're not going out to get steps. You're going out with Liz to do some cool stuff. And then you might look at your aura and be like, well, I've done 20,000 steps. Didn't even know, you know, I was just enjoying myself and seeing this and that. You know, encouraging clients to get out in nature, go for long walks, you know. Again, that's good evidence-based data on things like that. And, and daylight exposure, excellent. Go shopping with the missus, go whatever, you know, things like this. Far better satisfaction that way. Mm. So you can't get daylight exposure here in England, though, can you? Oh, man, it's been so fucking grey the whole time. <laughs> I think we've had, like, three sunny days. But anyways, I, I think that... um those things are totally undervalued and maybe even scoffed at sometimes because it's seen as like, oh, out in nature, like it's a bit hippie or it's too simple. How can something so simple be effective? But things don't have to be complicated to be effective. There is no causative relationship there. Like the the seatbelts, super simple, saved millions of lives. These really simple things can be super effective tools. Seatbelt, good example. You know, use a seatbelt on the seated handheld to give yourself better bracing so that you can drive more knee flexion output. There you go, people scoff like that. Hey, you know, it's very easy. It makes a big difference. But yep. no, you're right. I mean, the bodybuilding thing of like the Stairmaster, I think the Stairmaster is an awful choice of expenditure for any bodybuilder. I don't know I why anyone it. would do it. Yeah, it's the most high fatiguing activity that you can do. It's an awesome way to ruin your next leg session. It's just, it's not even that calorically dense in regards to the expenditure per minute either, but it's just a mental and fuck to do it on the same machine. Like, yeah. like, and maybe perhaps Joe, it's because people associate pain with progress and the Stairmaster is quite painful. So they think, Oh, this must be really effective. No, sweetheart. Well, same thing with taking all your sets to failure, you know. Sure, that's associated with greater, higher threshold motor unit recruitment, but uh, you then pay the price. So you pay the price with the amount of volume that you can perform, and therefore there's a hypertrophy trade-off. Just like you get on a Stairmaster and blaze yourself, you know, you're going to pay the price of very poor stress management. Mm. Yeah, I think people lose this concept of, like, how much can you get under the curve, you know? Like, you may be able to recruit more high threshold motor units per set if you take it to failure. But then over the course of the mesocycle and the macrocycle and the entire year, how many more effective sets could you actually do if you didn't quite make it to failure? Because you're not driving so much fatigue that you then have to take more breaks. Okay. Yeah. For a listener who's new to the term effective sets. Or effective reps. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Well, uh, Well, we could classify an effective rep, one that recruits a sufficient amount of muscle to drive a hypertrophic response, would be anywhere from three to four maybe repetitions from volitional fatigue or technical failure. Fair? Yeah, absolutely. So like if someone's not helping you do the rep, can you maintain the rep performance without changing technique, movement, all that kind of stuff within three reps from before you could never do a single one again? Yeah, before failure. You know, and we're going to say it's effective from at least four out, potentially slightly better from three, potentially slightly better from two, but we would argue whether or not the one to two mark is actually achieving all that much more in the grand scheme of things, but it is likely yeah. achieving far more fatigue. Yeah. If you look at high threshold motor unit recruitment, the, the massive majority you have recruited by about three reps in reserve. Mm. And, and then that four to three is when things are very productive. 
there's exponentially more fatigue to pay for everywhere. But after that, for quite a small amount of, excuse me, high threshold weight unit recruitment, that's not me saying that like never train beyond three to four, but you, you have to choose the time when that is suitable. Um, similar, so that's what I would call like a stimulus threshold, and there's a stimulus threshold with training volume as well. If you're performing likely less than eight sets per body part per week with less than three or four reps in reserve, then you know, other than a novice training, you're, you're unlikely to be getting much hypertrophy there. And again, for every set that you perform, there's more hypertrophy, but there's an additional cost to pay. Mm. So as with most things, you want to get somewhere in the middle, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's the non-sexy boring part. Yeah. I believe it's Jeff Nippard that has a really good, I don't know, 10-minute YouTube video on effective reps for anyone that wants to look further. I'll pop it in the show notes. But otherwise, I think that was a really clear explanation. And also... Um, Joe, I think a really clear explanation of why it's important to map it out, to think forward. Um, yeah. I mean, typically what you hear in the crowd of people that train to failure and also don't periodize, they don't ever take deloads. And what they don't realize is their body forces a deload upon them. You know, every couple of weeks when they change their exercise and train like a piece of shit for, for a day or two. When they get you know, sick. Or, uh, yeah, you don't realize, you know, when people say, yeah, I took a few days off, you're like, you you are chronically under training. Yeah. Really. You know, you, you're just, or you're doing like you said, like you get stagnant and you swap exercises. Well, you're kind of cheating uh, the laws of progressive overload there because you've just got like some neurological adaptation. Cool, but like skeletal muscular adaptation. No, you know, that, that's not happening because you haven't increased mechanical tension. You just learned a new movement a bit better than you did last week. Yeah, mm. and a novel yeah. stimulus always makes you more sore than a stimulus mm. that you that you've repeated over time. And again, people correlate soreness with growth, <laughs> and that's not always the case. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're really not doing themselves any favors. And they misappropriate novel. Like novel mm. can be the extra bit of rep, the extra little bit of load. Yeah, you know the extra set that's novel. Yeah, the increased range of um, motion. I think also it, it takes away from the very simple concept that has been, you know, tried and tested through time, which is the said principle, you know, specific adaptation to an imposed demand. And God, in order so many times. <laughs> oh, man, in order for you to do that, you need to do a specific thing to that same thre- uh, like tissue yeah. repetitively in order for you to impose the demand necessary for the adaptation. Yeah, the imposed demand is mechanical tension, but it has to be escalated. And the specific adaptation is skeletal muscle hypertrophy. Mm. You know, that's it. Yeah. All right, let's let's go a quick little recap. So, ideally, we want to try and set a relatively higher energy flux uh, state at the beginning, prior to a dieting phase, so that you have a higher output and a higher input, because we know that, that typically leads to a more successful dieting phase. We want people to consider how much do they need to lose and then what time frame is fair for them to do that, averaging about a half a percent of body weight loss per week. Um, more in the beginning, less in the More in the beginning. Assuming they've got a higher energy flux, then would we then say, Joe, that you're typically going to go for a, a energy input reduction, so food reduction? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Depending. If, if that sort of high energy flux initial point for a client was 10K steps, you know, that I don't consider that to be fatigue driving maybe i'll take that to 15 maybe in some cases higher maybe we'd introduce a standing desk someone listening here going standing still <laughs> um interestingly there was a paper that i i did a video on for physique collective where it was a case study comparing two 
women, same way. I think they were 150 pounds or 155 pounds, and they were comparing the caloric expenditure, the energy expenditure between the homeostatic work activity, which was eight hours of sitting versus standing, and there was a 700 calorie difference. Um, Holy the, shit. The, the woman standing, yeah, expended an additional 700 calories when going from sitting to standing. So this, of course, wasn't comparing two separate individuals' calorie expenditure because that, that wouldn't make uh, any kind of evidence make sense. Um, but taking these individuals from sitting to standing. Um, and no one could tell me that standing still is hard. You know, so there's an option for you. And also an option to make the, the NEAT more effective is to use things like a weighted vest, which I am uh, a fan of for some individuals. That can be a fatigue drive and you have to be careful with it. I've gone through various ways of programming this requires having them wearing it all day so they're almost just replacing the the weight loss and then we can get into that road and gravity stuff stuff which i don't think is it's a bit of a reach to apply that to humans but i think it's interesting um and then i've had clients that just use it like their steps in the morning for example um as a very kind of low fatigue calorie expenditure tool and i've had great utility with that and as a calf hypertrophy <laughs> mechanism as well you don't need that dude. um that works. Um, and posing. You know, escalating the amount of posing the client is doing for a prep. You know, maybe we'll start with two rounds of mandatories three times a week. Maybe that'll become five rounds of mandatory daily. And anyone that's posed hard knows it's hard. Yeah. It's cardio. Yeah, the energy demand on isometric contractions, gnarly. Um, yeah. They're all, they're all really cool points. Yeah. We like to wrap up a podcast, Joe, uh, with, well, our tagline is how to be less shit. So if you could leave listeners with a tip on how to be less shit, what might that be? In regards to managing energy balance. Yeah. Okay. Um, shameless plug then. To be less shit, I would recommend everybody educates themselves on these inputs that we've discussed today. And funnily enough, I have a website and an app that does exactly that for you. We have a ton of written content, visual content, Q&A on the forum with many different competitors and coaches, including myself, at Physique Collective. So go on the App Store, search Physique Collective. It's only £6.99 a month, and there's thousands of hours of stuff to dig through on that. So that would be this my recommendation. only appropriate for competitors? No, no, no. No, because we have lifestyle-specific coaches on there, like Matt Strong only works with lifestyle clients. He's got lots of things on there, how to eat out of various restaurants, blah, blah, blah. We have neurochemistry on there from Will Bassett. We have female-related content on there from Holly Davidge. We've got biomechanics content. We've got PD content for men and women. Everything imaginable within the physique development realm. Our tagline is physique development simplified. So we do pride ourselves on being evidence-based and being able to reference all of our stuff on there, but we do the hard bit of simplifying the data and presenting it in a way that's easily digestible. Oh. Love it. That's awesome. Awesome plug aside, though. Yes. What do people do wrong a lot with energy balance manipulation, and do you think, is it just the lack of plan? Uh, uh, yeah, I think um, just going into prep and prepping is the mistake, you know, from whatever point they're at. You know, um, I was speaking to a coach on the two brochures last year, and he said, how long do you have time to prep for? I said, well, depends on the client, you know, he said, well, I do 12 weeks of everyone. He, he actually said, he's going to sound so arrogant, but this did happen. He might listen to this. He said, how do all of your clients all turn up peeled? <laughs> and I said, I said, I don't know. Well, um, you know, we, we just prep properly. And, and that's when he said, how long for? And he said, I do 12 weeks of everyone. Said, 
Yeah, I don't really do 12 weeks with anyone. <laughs> I mean, like Christian prep for like 28 weeks, um, you know. Plus all the so, preparatory, gosh, help me out here, help me speak English. <laughs> Plus all the preparation that he did before the 28-week prep. Yeah, whereas someone like Ballinger, you know, we've got like 12 weeks and that's enough. So it depends where you're coming from. So, yeah, the plan, the periodization would be specific with understanding objectively where you need to get to and how to get there. That's the biggest mistake, like just doing the thing as if just by virtue of dieting and training, you're going to be peeled on this day. Mm. You know, it's not going to happen by chance. Yeah, if we could liken it to maybe trying to drive to a destination mm-hmm. you've never been to before, if you'd like to just get drive there, maybe just get in the car and go. Mm-hmm. See what happens. See where you end up. So right. Liz, how successful would your drive be? Liz, I want you to drive to Manchester tomorrow. Just go get in the car and go. I have no sense of direction. I get lost in this, like, tiny shoebox apartment trying to get to the bathroom. It would definitely be a failure. But, you know, yeah, you've got to check that there's fuel in the tank. You've got your phone charged. If you get into trouble, you need the map. <laughs> how long is it going to take to get there? Yeah, like, you can't just drive. You usually allow for error margin for traffic or taking a wrong turn. Yeah. All of these things are normal. I think it's because... um. Everybody eats. Most people do some form of activity. Therefore, everyone just feels like they know enough. When in actual fact, they've just been sort of going through life, picking up tidbits from people, picking up good behaviours, bad behaviours, and they don't really know where they're at. Accepting some myths. Yeah, and then they just start and they're like, well, I'm back in the same spot. Yeah. Oops, have an eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, that's another, another huge issue of why you need to plan for what you're going to do afterwards and practice that along the way. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Joe, I'm going to ask you a would you rather question. Sweet. Let the sweat begin running down thy brow. Oh, you, you, know, okay. you know me. We've spent time together, so you can probably think of something difficult for me. Mm. Oh, all right. <laughs> would you rather be raped a great start (laughs) (laughs) be raped 10 times between now and the day you die or rape someone once um does this that's the most horrible thing i could think of this requires this requires some questions all right go on shoot me with questions (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Google purple Aki, anyone who hasn't Look, it's a mixed bag, it's ten different men No, but uh, is he being, he's being raped in the bum He's not being raped as in like taken advantage of by a woman No, you're being raped in the bum Okay, yeah Yeah, it's a mixed I, um, bag I haven't experienced this But I would like to say be raped Because I would like to think that emotionally I could think This is saving someone else From potentially ruining their life So I'm going to have to just get on with it you think you could get over it 10 times? I don't know if I'd get over it, but I'd feel better knowing that somebody else didn't have to. You're a good man. I think that's a good answer. Do you mean that answer? Or are you saying it so you don't seem like a prick? Yeah, if it's a beautiful woman. <laughs> oh, you know. He nearly saved himself and then dumped it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the woman also doesn't know. I think we've had a similar one before. It's like, can I tell her I'm going to rape her? Can I apologize? Like, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Mm. I mean, I think Joe's definitely gone for the okay. right answer morally. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. Cool. Thank you for uh, the license to ask anything because I was fiddling with something way more PG, but 
that was fun. You know what? Normally we'd say that's a ball terror of a question, but in this instance, it's a bum terror. <laughs> Your poor butt, Joe. Your poor butt. Okay. Now, the <laughs> rape question aside, uh, thank you for an awesome podcast, and I hope everybody enjoyed the content. I'm sure not the content right at the very end. If you did, please take a screenshot, uh, share it on social media, tag Joe. What is your handle, Joe, on social media? Joe underscore physique collective. Okay. Tag Joe, tag Flex Success, Dean and I. Uh, what is it? Rate rate us on iTunes? Yep. Rate us on iTunes. Give us a thumbs up maybe on YouTube. I don't know. All the stuff that you need to do to make us popular. Do all of those things. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for joining us, everyone.